This is District Sentinel Radio for Monday, February 25th, 2019. I'm Sam Sachs, broadcasting out of the Sentinel Fort in Washington, D.C. And today we're talking about U.S. covert agencies and their activities in Latin America, a relevant topic given how history is repeating itself in the region with the U.S. pushing for a coup in Venezuela. We chatted with intelligence and secrecy reporter and author Jefferson Morley. He hosts the website deepstateblog.org, and he's the author of the book The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Angleton. Here's our interview. In the past few days, we have seen the Trump administration using a humanitarian aid convoy as a prop in an ongoing coup plot in Venezuela. Given what we know about Elliot Abrams, the uh, neocon who was hired by the State Department to orchestrate this scheme, is it safe to say that the convoy is probably not, in fact, in possession of humanitarian aid? You know, uh, it's a good question. We just don't know. It could be. Um, but the point being, is there uh is there an ulterior agenda to the humanitarian aid? There certainly is. And and this is the power play that uh, United States and other countries um, are orchestrating. And Elliot Abrams has been brought in as the President Trump's special envoy. So, um, you know, it's it's perfectly safe to say that this is a regime change operation and that the 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 purpose of the convoy is to penetrate um, the country. Um, and so whether uh, there is, um, uh, you know, uh, aid or something else in those trucks that are waiting on the border, we can be sure that at some point uh, things other than aid are going to come in. And and it's it's a it's a disturbing sign because, you know, we may be escalating towards, uh, you know, a, a, a confrontation which has been violent, you know, occasionally, but has not been a civil war. And uh, I think we're, you know, this this policy of demanding that the aid be let in. And I, I should note that, you know, the Venezuelans are allowing aid from other countries. It's not it's not just heartlessness. They they, they took a ten million dollar package uh, of aid from from Russia uh, over the weekend. Uh, so what's going on here is the U.S. is trying to create leverage and, and, and penetrate Venezuela, um, uh, fracture the military, fracture its control of the borders so as to you know lead to the overthrow of the government. And this is the policy that Abrams is orchestrating. So, yeah, and I, I guess we wouldn't even be asking this question if there wasn't such a long history of the U.S. Uh, laundering its regime change efforts or any sort of a, a sort of covert action through humanitarian groups, and that's not just a, that hasn't just happened in Latin America, but really all over the world. I'm remembering uh, when they had the um, the vaccine thing set up to try and find DNA to find Osama bin Laden. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the, 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 the humanitarian angle is important because remember when 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 Elliot Abrams first came on the scene in the 80s um, and was uh, involved in the Iran-Contra conspiracy, one of the ways that they ran that conspiracy was through something called the State Department Office for Humanitarian Aid to the Nicaraguan fighters. And so um, in that case as well, the humanitarian aid was a facade 
for military aid, which goes back to your original question, which is, is that going on again today? You know, we haven't seen that yet, but it's a perfectly, uh, given Abrams' history, it's a perfectly plausible and reasonable question to ask and a reasonable suspicion to have. And I believe uh, we have uh, been seeing this morning that uh, there are reports that the Red Cross has said people are posing as their workers on the uh, Colombia-Venezuela border, but but they aren't, in fact, uh, belonging to them. Though the Red Cross is operating in Venezuela, and it has also criticized this as a naked political ploy that is uh, undermining legitimate aid efforts. But anyway, uh, moving back to uh, an event about Abrams that sparked something you wrote, he, of course, clashed with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar over his past with the Reagan administration, the congresswoman asked specifically about his support of atrocities in Central America. Abrams became very upset. It caused a lot of hand-wringing in Washington among foreign policy careerists. Anyway, uh, in a recent article, you said that Omar could have asked a much tougher question, quote, does Trump's policy toward Latin America today involve protection of drug traffickers as Reagan's policy did in the 1980s? Uh, I was wondering if you could explain briefly who Abrams specifically ran cover for. So in 1986, um, Elliot Abrams ran cover or, or gave assistance to a, a Honduran general named Jose Buesarosa who had been caught in a drug trafficking scheme in, in South Florida. And they were flying multi-hundred kiloton shipments of cocaine into Central Florida. Um, Buesa was arrested for this. And um, I talked to federal prosecutors at the time and, you know, they had the guy cold, but they didn't want to make a big case out of it because Buesa was so well connected. And um, so what they didn't have overwhelming evidence uh, putting the cocaine in his hands. So but they, they got him convicted and he got a plea bargain. And because of his his connections in the government with the uh, Reagan administration, uh, he had been helping the Contras in Honduras in the 1980s. He got uh, a sentence and he was being sent to jail. But Bueso didn't think that he was going to jail at all. So all of a sudden, the Reagan people were in a panic led by Oliver North, who was kind of the point man of the conspiracy. And he. Hey, everyone. Sorry about that. The Internet in Jeff's office went out, possibly some sort of conspiracy uh, by the CIA <laughs> to thwart this interview, but we've called him back on his phone, and we will pick up at Oliver North. Yeah, so Oliver North uh, is the point man for the Iran-Contra conspiracy, and he wants to save Boiso from jail. So he sends an email around, and he says, uh, uh, I'm going to get together with Gorman and Claridge, other top Pentagon, CIA, and State Department officials, including Elliot Abrams, and we will cabal quietly. That was North language. We will cabal quietly <laughs> to see what they could do for this guy who's headed to jail for drug trafficking charges. And, and we know what they did. What, what they did was they got him into a, a minimum security club fed, as they call it, um, in Florida. And so um, he had the, the cushiest possible jail sentence, and eventually he got, um, he got out early. So 
in the course of advancing this regime change policy in Nicaragua, you know, they were using drug traffickers uh, to transport weapons. Uh, they were lying about it. And then when the drug traffickers got caught, they turned around and tried to save them from jail. This was part and parcel of the policy. I mean, it was the way the policy is done, which is why I, I think it's a reasonable question for Representative Omar and other you know, people in Congress to ask, which is, you know, what's the price of this regime change policy? Because we saw this exact same situation under Iran-Contra. The use of humanitarian aid to ratchet up pressure on a target government, and and in that case, you know, the use of drug tra- traffickers to advance the regime change policy. So in my site on the Deep State blog, you know, I've been trying to tell people, pay attention to the history of regime change operations in Latin America, and you will see consistent features. The United States has been at this for, for uh, since, you know, 65 years, since Guatemala in 1954. There have been multiple regime change operations, and they tend to work the same way. But they use the same techniques, and we're seeing those same, that same pattern recur in Venezuela, led by Elliot Abrams. Given that the same pattern is being employed and the same people are employing it here, I guess it speaks to the idea that none of them have any shame over over how these actions have transpired uh, in the past, in the 80s. And I guess that was evidenced by the questioning during that congressional hearing uh, in which uh, Abrams said, Oh, well, there's Democratic... Ele- was he talking about... Yeah, I guess he wasn't talking about Nicaragua. Well, that he was talking... That was El Salvador. Oh, that was on El Salvador, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but but, but clearly, I mean, yes, you're right. A- A- Abrams, you know, thought that that policy, which, you know, in El Salvador uh, involved uh, extensive use of death squads against anyone opposed to the government, you know... He thinks that the policy worked and that the and that the means justify you know the ends justify the means. So um, that's he couldn't have been more clear about that. And so you know they're not they're not saying you know we're going to use the the techniques of regime change that we used before. But it's perfectly fair to look for them because everything about this situation indicates that you know that that's that's what we're in. And the history of the of the, of the men making the policy led by Abrams couldn't be clearer. It, it would be surprising if they were doing anything different. And uh, Abrams, for the record, on El Salvador, El, El Salvador, uh, not not exactly the greatest record as a functioning state in recent times, and a lot no, of and, a lot of the waves of, of migrant children who have come uh, 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 have come from El Salvador, from Central America, also Honduras. But also MS-13, uh, as a gang, basically, it, it, it's, it doesn't exist without people like Elliot Abrams completely wrecking that country yeah. in the 80s. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the price of these policies, in, in, in the case of El Salvador and Guatemala, to save U.S. military dictatorships from, you know, leftist rebellion, you know, Involved the reign of terror in in in, in Guatemala. It, the, the violence was so bad it, it can fairly be described as genocidal, and 
that's a word that I think is overused um, in terms of, uh, you know, people sometimes charge that a policy is genocidal and it's not actually. But the term is very appropriate for what happened in Guatemala in the 80s. Um, in El Salvador, the policy was not genocidal. It was merely a reign of terror, which was implemented by the Salvadoran military with the help of the CIA and Pentagon and involved, you know, the, the, the routine liquidation of civilian opponents of the government. When, when the UN went to study the conflict in 1992 and did a study of the, of the, of the 44,000 people who had been recorded as being killed in El Salvador, and the number was, was probably larger, um, they found that um, uh, uh, 85% of the deaths of civilians could be attributed to the U.S. trained forces, mm. uh, which were the forces that were defended by Elliot Abrams. 5% were attributed to the left, uh, to the armed left, and, uh, and, the, and the rest was, was undetermined. So the overwhelming percentage of the violence directed at civilians in those wars came from the U.S.-supplied and U.S.-trained forces defended by Elliot Abrams. And the effect of that kind of catastrophic violence on a society is that you disorganize it and you debilitate it for generations. And so a generation later, you know, these societies are failed states because they're intelligent, you know, they're, the heart of their society have been wiped out or, you know, so many people have been wiped out that it just totally destabilized these countries and... And now they're failed states. And so the people who live there are desperate. They're dominated by gangs. And they flee just because they're looking for something better. So we have to connect the migration that we see today to the legacy of this policy of, you know, of, 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 un, of unrestrained violence that the Reagan administration relied on in the 1980s and people like Elliot Abrams helped implement. And, and, and now, you know, when... And when we look at Venezuela, you know, what I think is, you know, you have, you have a much bigger country, which to me seems like it's headed towards another Syria, you know, another failed state that is just, you know, a, a battleground of violence in all directions. And I'm afraid that's what we're headed for in Venezuela. It's I've I've been shocked by how explicit some of the regime change supporters have been about oil in this whole uh, scenario. Venezuela, of course, is the uh, world's number one reserve supply of oil. And you have they just had a hearing uh, on the Hill that featured uh, not just testimony from Elliot Abrams, but testimony from the State Department's energy uh, person discussing the oil situation in Venezuela. You've seen Rubio, Marco Rubio on Twitter explicitly make these uh, connections. Um, I guess that's a slightly different d dynamic than what was going on in these previous previous coups, but uh, still, it's... It, yeah, well, are, are you surprised right, because, how explicit it's been? Uh, I, I, I have been a little bit surprised um, at, at how explicit it's been, and, and I think that the... That the um, uh, that is a way of ratcheting up the pressure and 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 creating an incentive for any you know an intervention by saying you know uh, there's resources at the end of this and we can grab it. Now, I think that that is also a fantasy. It's like the fantasy that we were going to invade Iraq and Iraq's oil would pay for it. I mean, the fact is whoever winds up on top in Venezuela is going to control that oil and the ability of 
to turn it over to the United States. I just think that's going to be a non-starter in Venezuelan politics. And so that's why I feel like if that's what they're thinking, that's, that is a very dangerous dream, the same way that Iraq's oil was a dangerous dream. And it's not going to happen. What it's going to do is it's just going to lead to chaos. And, you know, there, 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 there is no payoff that way. Well, um, it, it does sound like they have people on the ground in Venezuela, uh, opposition leaders, who are totally fine with this. And that might be one of the reasons why they evidently can't muster enough popular support to actually oust the Maduro government with all the problems that it's been having and all the uh, it, and, and the crisis that's ongoing there. Yeah, you know, I think I think they've um, uh, you know they, they've believed their own story about you know the military is gonna is gonna break is gonna join with us gonna side with you know democracy and all of that and you know I just I I, I don't see it happening um, that that military has been uh, dominated by Hugo Chavez since since uh, the late nineties um, uh, it's 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 nationalistic. And, you know, there may be people saying, oh, you know, uh, uh, you can, you know, if you help us, you know, we'll share the oil with you. But it's a very bad bet. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's not very well thought out. And what they've done is they've created this situation now where they've raised the stakes so high. You know, if Maduro doesn't fall, and so far he continues to control the country, you know, then – then the United States is in this position of, well, you know, if we, do, you only have two choices: either you back down or you go to war because you're not winning in the status quo. And so, you know, I think that they're hoping this policy of pressure will destabilize the government and, and, and force it to change. But I, I don't see it working so far. So, um, but the but the but the nakedness of of, of of talking about the oil as a as a prize of this struggle um, is remarkable, and it's a sign of how of, of how serious this thing is. Um, we weren't really expecting, you know, a Latin American intervention. You know, even a year ago, was that on the Trump foreign policy agenda? You know, I don't think it was. Um, the collapse of the situation there has driven this, and people like Marco Rubio are jumping on the bandwagon because they see the opportunity to, you know, claim a victory. But, um, you know, look at the, look at these people's record. It, yeah. it, it's not very impressive. The out, the outcomes are, have been terrible, you know, in Guatemala and El Salvador in particular. And opportunism so, always, uh, plays into this sort of thing. Thinking about in 2009, when the Honduran military ousted, uh, Manuel Zelaya, it, it, it seemed to, uh, come from Honduras, but then immediately the Obama administration sort of jumped on the coup bandwagon and uh, totally legitimized it. And Honduras, as you noted today, in, in addition to all the other problems uh, from decades ago, a totally failed state. But yeah, uh, well, you know, when, you know, with, with these policies of regime change, I mean, what you're doing is you're taking control of the country out of the hands of the actors and and, and imposing a solution on it. Well, you know, when you do that, you destabilize it because why should anybody participate in democratic politics if, if it's just going to be crushed? You yeah. know? And so, pe you know, 
after these after these U.S. interventions, you know, people just gave up, and and understandably so, you know, and so that's what contributes to the failed state. People don't have any stake in the outcome if if some foreign superpower is just going to come in and and do what it wants to do, and so that's why these are turning into failed states, and that's what I'm afraid we're headed for in Venezuela mm. is uh, you know uh, is a, just a a collapse. We're not able to impose ourselves. Um, uh, nobody else is able to step up and control the situation. Getting to the uh, sort of motivations of the Trump administration when it comes uh, to Venezuela, and uh, similar to, I guess, the previous regime change efforts we've seen covert agencies undertake in Latin America throughout the 80s, there is an ideology to this and you hear it when the administration talks about socialism a lot. And I know a lot of socialists who would uh, dispute the idea of Venezuela being uh, the, the idea of socialism we should strive for. In fact, every socialist I know would say we shouldn't be striving for that model that's uh, on display right. in Venezuela. But it, it, it's hard to, to argue against the timing of how the administration is trying to equate uh, socialism in Venezuela, you see Trump doing this all the time, with socialism on the rise here in the U.S. is becoming a more popular ideology with candidates like Bernie Sanders. And you also have people like sure. Yar, Yar Bolsonaro, uh, who had some, who basically made death threats against socialists as he was running for office, now joining in to uh, do regime change in Venezuela as as well. H- how strong do you think the ideological influences are in what the Trump administration is doing in Venezuela? And is this, is this something that he can possibly use to uh, crush dissent here in the U.S. by uh, labeling them as Venezuelan socialists, essentially? Well, I think that I think clearly he's trying to, uh, you know, demonize the most um, aggressive and effective part of his opposition, which is now, you know, the the congressional Democrats are are, are on the offensive. They've got the majority in the House. They're investigating, and he's feeling the pressure. And the way you know he sees the way to turn them back is to label them as socialists. So I do think that domestic politics. Um, you know, is driving it. But I also think that, you know, um, this hostility to any kind of uh, collective government, uh, you know, any kind of government that is aiming for uh, the common good of the society, um, is going to be targeted because that's just not convenient for, um, you know, what they view as American interests. You know, but uh, I don't know of anybody who, you know, was thinking this is what we need to do. Uh, to me, this is a very opportunistic uh, uh, intervention driven by the domestic politics part and by the uh, uh, by the you know the the breakdown of the of the government there and the inability to provide for the provide for the people and, and provide food, provide uh, medicine, and so um, they see this opportunity to push you know push aside this government. Um, but like, I don't think that people have thought through what you know. If 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 the choice is between backing down in a military intervention, what does the military intervention look like? What are its prospects of success? I don't think anybody's thought that through, and they're not good. I mean, uh, you know, Venezuela is a huge country. It's not a little country like El Salvador, 
you know, five or six million people that you can push around and, and crush with impunity. You know, you're talking about a country of 20, 25 million people, and uh, it's a much, much bigger problem that they've taken on with, I don't think, a very clear roadmap to success other than we want to change that government and we'll do whatever's necessary to do it. Um, so, <clears throat> Rounding things off on another historical note, uh, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, so I'm glad you talked about it. Your piece was critical of how uh, many journalists discuss CIA-tied coke trafficking under the Reagan administration. So I was, I was wondering briefly if you could uh, talk about what the agency's inspector general said about the matter and how some reporters just sort of shamelessly framed the investigation. Yeah, this this is a classic case of news management. So, the story of that the that the CIA was involved with drug traffickers was 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 uh, was noted and reported at the time uh, uh, throughout the 1980s, and really burgeoned into a into a scandal um, in the mid um, in the mid 90s when the San Jose Mercury News did a big story about how this alliance of drug traffickers in the agency had worked in the case of a couple of drug traffickers in um, Los Angeles. And this turned into a big deal. Um, uh, uh, there were problems with the story the way it was originally written. But, you know, the general phenomenon, there was enough there that people were very upset. And there were hearings in, in Southern California. And John Deutsch, the director of the CIA, went out there to explain the agency's position. And so, and the agency, you know, denied it. And, and, but, but they denied it in a very clever way. They said, they said, you know, we did not sell, you know, we did not sell drugs in South Central Los Angeles, you know, which actually nobody had accused them of doing. It was a more complicated thing, which, which I alluded to before, which was if you're doing covert business, which they were doing in Central America, shipping down arms that you didn't want to be intercepted. You relied on people who knew how to do covert business and people who sent planes back and forth and people who were well armed. Well, that was drug traffickers. And the drug traffickers had 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 their own interest in working for the government because that might imply a degree of protection. Um, and indeed it did. So when this story came out in the mid 1990s, the CIA investigated and the inspector general, Frederick Hitz did a long two volume study and they put out a thing and said, look, we, you know, we have an 800 page study. We've studied this exhaustively and there's really nothing to these allegations. And so they put out a press release, which said that, you know, and they put out an executive summary, which was like a two page version of it. And they said that. And so they handed out to the reporters and reporters, said, you know, CIA studies drug trafficking allegations, there's nothing to it. And so they wrote that story. Then Hitz's report came out. And if you sit down and read the report, and there's two volumes, and in the second volume section, it's like a, the, each paragraph has, has a section number. If you read section 800 to 1100 in the second volume of the Hitz report, mm -hmm. you know, he lays out the name of 50 literally 50 drug traffickers who they did business with, who they knew were suspected drug traffickers and who they did not share that information with drug enforcement authorities. Now, did the CIA sell the drugs? No, they just protected the people who did it. And they were completely straightforward about how they did it. And it's all in there. 
in the inspector general's report. Um, huh. It's completely irrefutable. The CIA exactly proves the point that they did business with suspected multi-hundred kiloton traffickers for extended periods of time. They did not care anything about any allegations of involvement in drug trafficking. They did not investigate the men for drug trafficking while they were working for the U.S. government. And afterwards, they denied that they had anything to do with them until Congress came and investigated. And then they said, oh, yeah, we did business with all those people. So it was it was the shameless denial accompanied by complete documentation that the denial was BS. That's how they work. And and it works <laughs> because no reporter is going to sit down and spend, you know, a day reading a, a thousand page report. And the CIA knows that. And so uh, and so the story is out there. And uh, and and yet the denials are still reported. Three is a pattern. Four is a trend. Fifty is a gang. <laughs> That's a gang. <laughs> Listen to journalists. Yeah. You can't judge an oversight report by its cover or even its executive summary or even like eight hundred of the pages in it. Also, look to the footnotes. footnotes Always a lot yes. of good stuff in the footnotes. Good stuff too. in the footnotes for sure. <laughs> yes, Jefferson. Yeah, that, and this is a class, classic case of that. Jefferson Morley, intelligence and secrecy reporter. Check out uh, his blog over at deepstateblog.org and read his book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spy Master James Angleton. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Sam. And that'll do it for District Sentinel Radio. Thanks for being a subscriber and thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. We're back tomorrow. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.